Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 20, verses 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we think about Jesus, whether we're Christians or not, a lot of ideas pop into our heads. He was a really good moral person. He was a revolutionary. He wanted to change the world. He was a radical. Uh, he was so compassionate to the poor and the marginalized. He was so determined uh, in the face of opposition and ultimately death, steadfast, immovable. And all of these things are, are true of Jesus. But what what rarely comes to our mind when we think about Jesus is how brilliant he is. If you read, if you read carefully through the gospel stories, you see this through, through every one of them. The brilliance of Jesus. He's, he is, as the kids say, wicked smart. Even, interestingly, as a young boy, uh, we see Jesus' brilliance. So we've been in the gospel of Luke now for several weeks. If you were to go back to chapter 2, of Luke. There's a little story in there. We actually didn't preach on it uh, when we went through the Gospel of Luke, where Joseph and Mary, uh, Jesus' parents, they lose him in the temple. It's just a fantastic parenting moment. Now, when they realize Jesus is gone, they go back and look for him in the temple. And do you remember where they find him? He's talking to the teachers and the scribes and the religious leaders, and he's asking them questions uh, about Torah. And the people are marveling at him because of his understanding. And he was what, like 12? This is my favorite part. When his parents find him in that story, Mary, his mother, basically looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, what were you thinking? We were worried sick. We had no idea where you were. And Jesus is like confused. He looks at Mary and says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house, meaning the temple? Now, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph have no idea really what Jesus meant by that. And here's what's funny to me. Okay, I'm a parent of young children. Many of you are parents, grandparents, or you, at least you have maybe kids in your life. You're an, you're an aunt, you're an uncle. There are moments, if you're ever helping uh, your child or a young person with their homework, that you realize my kid is smarter than I am now. <laughs> now, that moment comes sooner for some than for others. Uh, but it always happens. There's a moment where you look at what they're doing and it's like, I don't know how to do this. This was that moment for Mary and Joseph. I can hear, I can almost hear Joseph whispering to Mary, we are in big trouble. Jesus is smarter than we are. Now in our text today, Jesus is actually back at the temple, just like he was when he was 12. And now he's teaching uh, people again, and they're again marveling at him. Not this time because of his power and his miracles, which 
Luke has been clear to show us throughout his gospel, but now because of his brilliance. And try as they might, Jesus' enemies cannot outsmart him, they cannot trap him, they can't manipulate him, they can only submit to him. And Luke is challenging us to do the same. We need to see here in this text that Jesus is smarter than we are. He just is. And we can either fight him or try to trap him and ultimately fail, or we can submit to him and follow him and learn from him. So if you have your Bible handy, grab it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20. We're going to be covering a lot of ground there, so make sure to have your Bible open. If you remember, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem as the reigning Messiah, but he doesn't take the throne, at least not in the way we understand that, or his, his original audience would have understood. Instead, he goes to the temple first to teach. And Luke shows us, as he's teaching in the temple, these different religious groups coming to Jesus to test him with what would have been the hot-button issues of their day to discredit him. They want to trap him. They think they can outsmart him. They actually go three rounds with Jesus in this text, and each round shows us something different about what it looks like to submit to Jesus' unparalleled brilliance. So that's what I want to look at today. Round one starts with a question about Jesus' authority. Okay, so the temple leadership, the scribes, the scholars, the chief priests, okay, the big dogs, uh, they don't like that Jesus is teaching in the temple. Uh, this is their home turf. This is their, their tenured professors here at the temple. And not only is Jesus setting up shop there, to, he's, he's actually beginning now to steal their students because he's so popular. Right? These guys are showing up at their lecture hall, their corner of the, the temple courtyard, and half their students are missing. And they're like, where is everybody? And, you know, uh, little uh, Josiah says, well, teacher, they're, they're going to listen to Rabbi Jesus. He's that popular. And they're mad about that. So this is verse 2. They go to confront Jesus in the middle of his teaching. They say, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Now, make no mistake, this is not a genuine question. These people are not curious for Jesus' answer. This is a shaming question. Okay? This is meant to discredit Jesus. It's, it's, imagine it would be like coming to church on a Sunday morning. Uh, and the, the, the preacher, the teacher's in the middle of the sermon, and someone stood up and said, now remind me again why we need to listen to you. By what authority do, do we need to submit to your teaching? Right, that would do, first of all, don't ever do that, because it's incredibly rude, and it's designed to undermine the teacher, because everybody hears it, and it's really, really awkward. And these Religious leaders are thinking, maybe, just maybe, not only can we shame Jesus, we can actually get him to lose his cool in public, and we can get like a viral temple meltdown from popular rabbi Jesus. That's the idea. And they're feeling pretty confident about their plan, because remember, these religious leaders have better resumes than Jesus does. Okay? On paper, these guys are seminary trained, they know big words, they were discipled by Rabbi so-and-so at his school just down the street, okay, Ivy League all the way. Some of the most brilliant minds in the country around how to interpret Torah okay, are here at the temple. And then this Galilean podunk homeless guy, Jesus, shows up, and he wants to hang with us. He can't hang with us. That's their first mistake. 
they think they can outsmart Jesus, and they can't. So Jesus doesn't answer them directly. Instead, he asks them his own question. And he says, ah, okay, you want to talk about authority and where authority comes from. So let's talk about John the Baptist. Now, if you were reading through Luke's gospel straight through, you would remember earlier in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist is this prophet outside of Jerusalem uh, who preached repentance to prepare the way of the Lord. He was incredibly popular. And the people in Jerusalem and surrounding that area believed him to be a true prophet of God. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, not so much, because he was less than flattering to them in his own preaching. So Jesus asked them, hey, what about John? Where did his authority to preach repentance come from? Did it come from heaven? Which is another way of saying, did it come from God himself? Or did it come from man? Did it come from his popularity? Did it come from his resonance with the people? Now, the leaders now, they're in a bind. And Jesus knows it because John baptized Jesus. So whatever they say about John, they have to now say about Jesus. And I love this. So, he, so Jesus asks them this question. And they do one of these. They kind of hold up a finger and say, Jesus, just one minute. And they circle up. <laughs> they powwow. And they say, okay, here's the deal. They say, well, if, if, if we say that John's authority is from man, we're dead because he's too popular. This, that would be political suicide. These people would turn on us. But if we say his authority is from God, then Jesus wins because that validates his claim to authority. And we can't let Jesus win. That's the whole reason we came here to confront him in the first place. So they come back and they say, after careful consideration, we have decided that we do not know the answer to your question. And Jesus says, if you won't answer my question, then I'm not going to answer yours. Okay, round one to Jesus. How did he do it? Well, here's, here's how. Jesus is smarter because his authority is higher. His authority is higher. The teachers want to see Jesus' resume. They basically go to him and they say, what degree, what affirmation, what coalition, what teacher tells us that we should listen to anything you have to say? And Jesus basically responds. He says, yeah, my authority doesn't work like your authority does. Okay? It, my authority doesn't come from man. It comes directly from God. And watch this. Rather than engaging with Jesus about the truth of that claim, okay, rather than circling up and saying, for example, hey, what if Jesus is right? Well, what if his authority is different? What, what, if, what if it does come from heaven as John taught and his baptism taught and as Jesus has said and as his miracles seem to validate? What, what if there is something different about this guy. Rather than engaging with that question, they move past the truth and straight to the consequences of the truth. If it's true that Jesus' authority is higher, then our authority as teachers is threatened. Therefore, Jesus' authority can't be higher. So they won't answer. So on the one hand, Jesus, yes, he's outsmarting them at their own game, but he's also inviting them into a conversation about who he really is and what that might mean for them. But they won't have it. They won't bite. They won't engage. Now, let me, let me ask. You know, we can do this too. We can come to brilliant Jesus and question his authority. We can question his teaching because 
we don't like what he has to say, and we can forget that his authority is what actually matters the most. So if you want to learn from brilliant Jesus, you have to let him challenge you. To let him challenge you. You know, we all come to Jesus with our, our priors. Okay, This is just human nature. We all come to Jesus with our own preconceived answers to things. But if we aren't careful, we can get caught up in the consequences of Jesus' answer to us before we engage with the truth of Jesus' answer to us. In other words, we can come to Jesus, and in particular, we can come to Jesus in his word as he's revealed in the Bible. We can come to Jesus for advice or for input or for Jesus' opinion, but not his authority. And that's a perilous thing to do. Because, man, if Jesus' authority is from heaven, he, he could challenge me on anything and everything, and that's uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. That's scary. And yet, it's exactly what we're called to do. So ask yourself, when's the last time you let Jesus challenge you? When is the last time you were open to an idea from Jesus that made you uncomfortable? Where the consequences seemed daunting, but you accepted it anyway? Perhaps it's around a lifestyle choice that you know Jesus does not approve of. Or perhaps it's about his call to forgive someone who's really, really hurt you and you don't want to go there. Or perhaps it's an obedience issue that you keep ignoring. Or a social issue where the Bible and our culture strongly disagree. When is the last time you disagreed with Jesus and submitted to him anyway? Think about that. As I was preparing for this message, even, there was a decision I needed to make that I didn't want to make. And after prayer and thought, it actually became clear to me really quickly what it was that I was supposed to do. It really actually wasn't that complicated. It was one of those problems where it wasn't so much that I didn't know what to do as much as it was I didn't want to do it. And so, even subconsciously, I began to think and pray, you know, Jesus, I know what I should do, but I don't want to do that. So here's, what if I do this instead? Would that be good enough? Is that close enough? And I could, I could almost hear Jesus' answer to me through this text. I could almost hear Jesus say, Andrew, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Uh, my authority over your life, where does it come from? Does it come from you and how you feel? Or does it come from me and who I am? And I thought, good question, Jesus. <laughs> Do we come to brilliant Jesus for his opinion but not his authority? Is he our friend and our counselor, but not our king? Do you live like Jesus' authority is higher than yours? If you do, then you got to let him challenge you. It's the only way that works. Okay, round two. Now the temple leadership is really, really mad. Okay, so they, now they've been embarrassed publicly. And Jesus presses the attack. He actually gives a parable here uh, that is very unfriendly to the, to the temple leadership. We don't have time to go over it now. But now they not only want to trap Jesus, they want to kill him. So this is verse 20. Uh, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So now they want to catch him on the record saying something that would offend Rome and take him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, to get him executed. This will be their strategy for the rest of the Gospel of Luke. And they have the perfect hot-button issue to bring to him. Okay, politics. Politics. 
You can't say anything about politics without offending somebody, right? So they, they think this will get him. This is going to get him. So they send these spies in to play nice and listen to how they flatter Jesus. This is verse 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So now the gloves are off. Okay, these nothing made people angrier in Jerusalem than talking about Rome and talking about taxes. So think about our kind of political moment, right? Right? It's really divisive now. Multiply that by 10. There are people in the crowd that Jesus is teaching while he's getting lobbed this question about Caesar and taxes. There are people in this crowd, on the one hand, who are probably actively planning a seditious act against Rome, okay? Like a zealot. And on the other hand, there are people in this crowd who are waiting for anyone to say something against Rome to go report them to the authorities. All of the, and everything in between are in this crowd at one time. But listen to Luke here. He gives us an insight, verse 23. But Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, that was a coin, a Roman coin, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And so he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became Silent. Okay, brilliant Jesus shuts them down again. That's two rounds for Jesus now. And essentially, Jesus points out that, yes, Caesar can have his coins back. I mean, yeah, that's his face on there, right? Give it back to him. But whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? Your heart, your allegiance, your faith, your obedience belong to God and to no one else. So give that to him. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And listen, we could do an entire sermon just on Jesus' answer to this question. It is that brilliant. It's that profound. And the implications for how people who follow Jesus interact with government and taxes and culture, right? They ripple out from this statement. Uh, and I would love to spend time on it, but we just don't have time. I want to focus on something else. <laughs> because here's the thing. As, as deep, as profound as Jesus' understanding is around faith and politics... His understanding is deeper, even than that presenting issue, okay? And I want to look at that. Jesus is smarter because his understanding is deeper. Before Jesus even engages with the question presented to him, he is already engaging with the heart of those questioning him. Luke makes sure that we see this. He perceived their craftiness. He saw straight into the heart, and that shaped his answer to them first. He knew who they were and why they were asking. Now, this is what makes Jesus so dangerous. He doesn't just know what you're asking better than you do. He knows why you're asking better than you do. His understanding is x-ray vision. It sees through flesh and bone straight to the heart. His understanding is deeper. So if we want to learn from Jesus, we have to let him see us. Let, let Jesus see you. One of the incredible gifts, actually, that we have from Jesus is his promise to search us and to know us through and through, every nook and cranny of our lives. We actually, as human beings, long to be seen and known by God, even though that is scary and painful at times, because 
He sees all of the things that you and I work really, really hard to never see about ourselves. But in our prayers to Jesus this week, whether this, it's the thousandth time you've prayed or perhaps even the first time you've prayed to Jesus, ask him, Jesus, where am I being disingenuous with you? Where, where, what am I hiding from you? What am I hiding from myself? What am I hiding from everybody around me? Search me and know me. Jesus, see me and teach me. Okay, Make that a part of your prayer life this week. Okay, round three. Now we get to a newcomer to this whole argument, okay, the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were simply another religious sect of Judaism at the time of Jesus, similar to the Pharisees, which if you've read through Luke's gospel, you see their name pretty frequently. Uh, that's verse 27, they show up. Now, a little background on the Sadducees that uh, you may need to know. The Sadducees were known for a couple of things. It's kind of unique to them. The first was that they were, uh, they were known for only believing the books of Moses were really God's word. So when you look at your Old Testament, there's all kinds of books, right? There's, there's uh, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by Moses. And then you've got the history, and then you've got the prophets, okay? The Sadducees only read these first five books. They didn't read Isaiah. They didn't read Jeremiah. Um, they didn't think that was inspired. It was just these five books of Moses. And because of that, Luke tell, and Luke tells us here, they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They don't think that Moses teaches that we're resurrected from the dead at the end of time. They think that once you die, you're dead. And that's it. And they disagreed with the Pharisees on that, and they disagreed with Jesus on that, because Jesus teaches the resurrection from the dead. And they want to put Jesus in his place, too. They want a little piece of him. And so they come to him around the resurrection with this little brain teaser that they've come up with uh, that they use with all of the resurrectionists in their lives to try to convert them to their position on the issue. And so they try it on Jesus. This is verse 28. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So the background here is that in the law of Moses, there's a provision for widows. Should, they die, should their husband die without an heir, that the brother of their uh, husband must marry her. This was to make sure that single women were cared for among God's people. This was a social safety net. So the Sadducees, they take that law and they extrapolate it seven times. They say, what if this poor, poor woman had to marry seven brothers because they all kept dying on her and she never had any children. Now, first of all, that would raise serious questions uh, if you were the eighth brother in line. But for the purposes of the argument, what they're trying to do is called a reductio ad absurdum. Okay? If the resurrection is real, it would lead to all kinds of absurdities, like this one. Therefore, it must not be real. Okay? There must not be no resurrection. So they put this question to Jesus, and they kind of fold their arms, and they wait. And here's Jesus' answer. This is verse 34. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, 
because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised, even that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So Jesus gives two responses here. Okay? I actually want to start with the second one in verse 37. He says, listen, you're not even reading Moses right. He says, go back and read Moses. Moses taught you the resurrection. He points out that in the book of Exodus, when Moses is called by God at the burning bush for the first time, if you're familiar with that story, he says, God does not introduce himself to Moses this way. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus shows God doesn't make promises and relationships that end with death. From God's perspective, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive and well, even though they are physically dead by the time Moses comes around. And Moses, made that, he recorded that, he made that clear. He says, first of all, you're not even reading Moses right. But his first response is what really blew them out of the water. Because not only do they not know what they should know, if they would just read Moses properly, they don't even know what they don't know. And that's where Jesus starts. Jesus basically says, you, you think the resurrection life has marriage and widows and, and all this stuff? If you think that God is basically recreating everything you know and understand about this current age into the next one, you're not thinking big enough. Jesus is smarter than these guys because his kingdom is so much bigger than they even understand or comprehend. They don't even know what they're asking. The best analogy I could think of is like when a child looks at a parent and says, you know, mom, dad, I never want to move out of the house. This, this is all I need and I love being with you. I'm just going to stay in my room forever. This is where I want to live. And as a parent, you kind of chuckle when they say that because you know there's this huge world outside that the child can't even yet comprehend. And yet once they see it for themselves, everything will change. And of course, then they'll have dreams and ambitions that are much bigger than just the home they grew up in. That's where Jesus is with the Sadducees. It's like he's patting them on the head and he says, if, if you stick with me, if you let me teach you, I will show you things you can hardly imagine. I'll show you a kingdom that's so big, you'll, you'll, you'll spend a lifetime wrapping your head around it. So, last thought, let Jesus teach you. Let him teach you. I mean, that's why we're in this series, Rediscovering the Kingdom, is to learn from Jesus about his kingdom, the reality that he's bringing to bear in all of life right now that we can barely comprehend, preparing us for a future that we can hardly imagine. It takes a lifetime of learning from Jesus to even scratch the surface on this kingdom life. And yet we're, we're invited to live it now and to enter now. That's why at Christ's community, there's such an emphasis here on apprenticing with Jesus, training with Jesus, learning from him directly. That's the offer Jesus makes to anyone who would follow after him. But we don't just learn moral things from Jesus. Okay, that's why the kingdom language, it matters so much. It's so much bigger than we realize. Jesus is not just some moral teacher who's only interested in ethical questions like right and wrong or spiritual and unspiritual, whatever those categories mean. For him and his kingdom, everything matters. 
It is all being redeemed. It is all being resurrected. And he wants to use his people in their everyday lives to bring that kingdom to bear. Not only in their moral decisions, yes, of course, but in our work, in our play, in our relationships, in our service, everything. So let Jesus teach you in all of life. That's, that's part of why we created the formed life in the first place, is, which you can still sign up for right now. It, it, it's not too late. We'll send you daily practices meant to bring us into the presence of Jesus, both as individuals and as a church corporately, to be challenged by him, to be seen and be known by him, and to learn from him about all things. We can come to him, just like the Sadducees did. We can come to him with our little boxes, right, and say, Jesus, help me with this. Here's your kingdom, Jesus. Help me. Help me understand. And he says, listen, we've got we to expand your horizons here. You need to see how big this kingdom is for me to properly train you to live into it. And remember, it is the same Jesus, the same one for whom and through whom and by whom all things were made. It is the same Jesus who lived and died and rose again. This brilliant Jesus who invites anyone who's willing to learn from him to come to me. Learn from me. I will show you things you never thought possible. And I will give you a life unlike anything the world has to offer you. Learn from him.